Once long ago, there was a prince who lived a life of great ease, surrounded by all manner of pleasant, beautiful things, really surrounded by everything that his his doting father could provide so that his son would, would have no chance of encountering anything unpleasant externally sheltered from seeing any aspect of human hardship or suffering, and also sheltered from knowledge of any kind of uh, religion or spiritual seeking. And the, the prince's father, the king, he wished to keep his son from contact with anything that might tempt him to renounce his inheritance as the prince and leave that palace and the life there. And yet, for all of this effort, the king was not able to completely shield his son in this way from the fundamental truths of life. And and eventually the young prince did venture out of the palace. It said it was at the age of 29 when he did this. And he was confronted with the realities of human frailty when when he went out, with the inescapable truths of life that all who take birth are subject to aging, illness, and death. And when he saw these things, he he was troubled and and his heart was deeply moved. And, And in his own words, he said, I thought when an ordinary person who is subject to aging sees another who is aged, aged, they are shocked, humiliated, and disgusted. They forget that they are no exception. But I too am subject to aging, not exempt from aging. And so it cannot befit me to be shocked, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another who is aged. And when I considered thus, the vanity of youth entirely left me. And then I thought, I too am subject to sickness, not exempt from sickness, and I too am subject to death not exempt from death, so it cannot befit me to be shocked, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing one who is sick or on seeing one who is dead. And when I considered thus, the vanities of health and of life left me. And so through this uh, experience, there was the realization that he wasn't going to live forever in good health. And these are just basic truths. We could call them fundamental existential truths. But they, they had a uh, profound effect on his way of looking at things. And what's the point of life if I'm just going to get old and sick and die? The question coming then in the heart, is there possibly more to life than just this? Is there some, some understanding here? And then at that time, after that, the prince saw a renunciate, an ascetic wanderer, spiritual seeker, dressed in simple robes, clear of eye, a serene bearing and countenance. 
And he asked, and he was told this was someone who had, had renounced the world in a certain way, had left worldly life in order to seek understanding and to discover a way to peace in light of these same fundamental truths of aging, illness, and death. And the prince, seeing this, thought to himself, why, being myself subject to birth, aging, ailment, and death, to sorrow and defilement, do I seek after what is also subject to these things? Suppose, being myself subject to these things, seeing danger in them, I sought after the unborn, unaging, unailing, deathless, sorrowless, undefiled, supreme surcease of bondage. Nibbana. And once, not so long ago, there was a group of people, and they came from all different walks of life. They came from many different places. And some were quite advanced in years, with their life's end coming into view. And some were quite young and saw so much of their life ahead of them, had this view and all the promises and possibilities there, and most of them were somewhere in between. And yet despite all their apparent differences, these people were united in having heard a certain calling a voice that spoke to them, urged them into action. And all, this, all the sound of the voice was different for each one of them. And the words were different. The basic message was the same. Awaken, friend, and go forth. And so each one in their own way, some supported by family and friends with their hearts full of faith and confidence, and some alone, some with fear and confusion in their hearts. They all made their way by this route and that route to a town and to a place, and they came there to sit together in silence and to ask the difficult questions and to come face to face, become intimate with sorrow and joy. And each in their own way was seeking the same thing as the prince in the earlier story. A way across the flood of confusion. A way to understand and make meaning out of these basic truths of life. A way to clarity, to freedom. And so... In both of these stories, this encounter on some level with the uh, inevitable truths of existence, of life. Sometimes these are called the heavenly messengers. And they spoke this call to wake up. And they led this prince, whose name, as you may have guessed, was Siddhartha. Siddhartha in Sanskrit. They led him to actually leave the palace and the sheltered life that he had there, the life of comfort and ease, and to launch out into unknown territory to seek teachings, to try to find understandings, a path that would lead him to find relief from the universal suffering that he now understood was a, a hallmark, a defining trait of humanity, something shared by all. 
So we could say he was faced with a kind of choice. He could directly come face to face with the truth of things, with reality, or he could turn away, retreat back into the palace in essence, and find ways to deny this or somehow keep them out of the mind. There's a story in one of the collections of the teachings called the Anguttara Nikaya. And the Buddha is telling a story there about a man who has died and he appears before Lord, Lord Yama, who's the god of death. And uh, Lord Yama, the god of death, speaks, says, Good man, didn't you see the first divine messenger that appeared among human beings? No, Lord, I didn't see. But good man, didn't you ever see among human beings a person 80, 90, or 100 years of age, frail, bent like a roof bracket, crooked, wobbling as they go along, leaning on a stick, ailing, youth gone, with broken teeth, with gray and scanty hair, or bald, with wrinkled skin and blotched limbs? (laughs) Yes, Lord, I have seen this. Good man, didn't it occur to you, an intelligent and mature person, I too am subject to aging. I am not exempt from aging. Let me now do good by body, speech, and mind. And then in the story, the the king, things are repeated a lot in some of these stories. King Yama asked the man about the second and the third of these divine messengers, a person who's sick, afflicted, gravely ill, and a dead person, a corpse. Didn't it occur to you, an intelligent and mature person, I too am subject to illness. I am not exempt from illness, and I too am subject to death. I am not exempt from death. Let me now do good by body, speech, and mind. Much of the time we're kind of like the man in this story. We don't like to think about aging, sickness, and death very much maybe especially in this country. You know, when we see life, life is happening now. Old age and death somewhere down the road, hopefully down near the end of a very long road. And we'll deal with with it later when the time comes. But death is not waiting down a long road. It's our companion in life and it's walking with us every step of the way. Since the time I started this talk, now about a little over 10 minutes, 106 people every minute have died. That's something over a thousand worldwide. Almost two per second. And that's only human beings countless other beings. And so many have also come to birth. These heavenly messengers, they didn't just show up that one time for Prince Siddhartha. They're here with us right now, sitting, listening to the Dhamma here in the hall. And we could see them pretty easily if we looked, but we tend to turn away 
we focus our energy on, on getting and having, accumulating various things, possessions or experiences, even meditative ones. And we use them to enhance our sense of who we are, to define ourselves in ways. And this kind of focus can kind of shield us from really coming close to becoming intimate with these fundamental truths of life. But aging, sickness, and death, these are just part of life. They're natural, inevitable part. They're true for everyone. They were true for the Buddha. There's a, uh, a sutta called the Jara Sutta that I love. Jara means aging. I have heard that on one occasion, the Blessed One, that's the Buddha, was staying near Savati in the eastern monastery, the palace of Migara's mother. Now on that occasion, the Blessed One, on emerging from seclusion in the late afternoon, sat warming his back in the western sun. And then the Venerable Ananda went to the Blessed One, and on arrival, having bowed down to the Blessed One, massaged the Blessed One's limbs with his hands and said, It's amazing, Lord. It's astounding how the Blessed One's complexion is no longer clear and bright. His limbs are flabby and wrinkled. His back bent forward. There's a discernible change in his faculties, the faculty of the eye, the faculty of the ear, of the nose, of the tongue, and of the body. That's the way it is, Ananda. When young, one is subject to aging. When healthy, subject to illness. When alive, subject to death. The complexion is no longer so clear and bright. The limbs are flabby and wrinkled. The back bent forward. There is a discernible change in the faculties. The faculty of the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, and the body. I've spent a lot of time in Savati on pilgrimage, more than one time. But I spent most of the rains retreat there one year. So maybe I have a special feeling for this. I can picture the Buddha sitting in the sun as he's gotten older and the kindly Ananda giving him a, a massage. Blessed one, dude, look what happened. We got old. And the, the, the warmth and affection there, the comradeship over so many years, and the reality of the aging body. And the Buddha had, had chronic back pain, it appears, and it wasn't always easy. And from the very moment we take birth, we're headed in one direction only, that first breath is a harbinger of the last one that's going to come one of these days. And when it does come, when, that last, when we breathe out that last breath, it will take all of our acquisitions. We'll be laying it all down at some point. So death is not waiting for us at the end of the road. It's our constant companion as we walk through life. Uh, a book that I was very, very important to me when I was in high school was uh, called The Teachings of Don Juan, 
by Carlos Castaneda. And uh, I'm reading, I'll read a little bit from that. So this is uh, Don Juan as a teacher speaking to Carlos. Death is our eternal companion. It is always to our left at an arm's length. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you, or if you catch a glimpse of it, or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. The issue of our death is never pressed far enough. Death is the only wise advisor that we have. Your death will tell you that nothing really matters outside its touch. One of us here has to change and fast. One of us here has to learn that death is the hunter and that it is always to one's left. One of us here has to ask death's advice and drop the cursed pettiness that belongs to those that live their lives as if death will never tap them. Think of your death now. It is at arm's length. It may tap you at any moment. So really, you have no time for crappy thoughts and moods. None of us have time for that. Those are pretty strong words. But they point to the fact that we don't have any idea when death will tap us. There's no guarantees. The next breath is not guaranteed. Death is certain. The time of death is not. If we really let this in, then what will we do? How shall we live? In some really profound way, I look at this entire practice on one level, as a preparation for the process of dying and for death. It's going to be a really interesting transition. And I would like very much to be there for it, if at all possible. What if this is the last inhalation? And this the last exhalation? We can inform our practice in a way that is not, it's not morbid or, it's actually beautiful. Oh, let me be here for it. What if this is my last bad mood? (laughs) Let me be there. My last complaining mind state. My last moment of joy. Let me show up. Let me be present. So there's a, there's a poignance to anything that might be happening in any moment. It's said that on the morning of his death at uh, the age of 77, uh, the Zen master named Kozan Ichiko wrote this poem using his brush and ink set the brush down, and died sitting upright the next moment. Empty-handed I entered the world, barefoot I leave it. My coming, my going, two simple happenings that got entangled. Such a beautiful sense of 
a balanced mind there, a mind released from clinging to simple events that somehow got entangled, my first breath, my last breath, woven together in that way. There's an old monk that I, I used to be able to visit quite frequently because I've, I've gone to Burma many, many times as a yogi and also um, part of a small group that does some uh, aid work there. And uh, there was a, a Sayadaw is um, a teacher, like Ajahn in Thai tradition. And we, my friends named this monk the happy Sayadaw. I think the happiest being I have ever met. Worth going to Burma just to sit with him even for a few minutes. And he died at the age of, uh, let's see, he was 97, having been in the robes for 85 years at that point. And he was so light and so deep. And he loved to laugh. And he would throw up his arms and laugh. And one of my friends uh, went to see him one day and well, one of the last times I saw him, he was getting really old and it was hard for him. There's a, he lived in the Sagaing Hills, my favorite place in the world probably, and a lot of stairs to get up to the monastery. And, and some, he'd been invited out to have a meal and give a Dharma talk. And he was coming back and, and there were some younger monks were helping him go up the hill. And so they had made a, a chair by holding their hands for him to sit on and one was behind. And he was... He was going up the hill and his legs weren't touching the ground, but they were kind of moving like this. And he was laughing and laughing, kind of flying up the stairs. And you'd think, oh, that was so undignified, but there was no, he was very, very dignified. And one of my friends went to see him one day and he said, oh, I almost died last week. <laughs> Not a problem. So as the Buddha taught, it's all that we cling to our attachments, maybe especially our sense of self that is the cause of suffering, the root cause. And so if we live with the understanding that death is going to part us from everything we hold on to, including whatever sense of self we might have cobbled together, we might be able to start releasing that grip now, and this could save us from a lot of dukkha down the road. In this tradition, there are a series of four contemplations, and many of my teachers in this upper part of Burma, this is their main practice, are these four contemplations. They're called guardian or protection meditations. The qualities of the Buddha, metta, the 32 parts of the body, and the recollection of death. Now our hearts might initially not leap up at the thought of contemplating the inevitability of death. Maybe they do for some of us. And we might wonder, why is that considered to be a guardian meditation, a guardian meditation? Meditation might sound really good. 
And maybe we like the idea of metta as that, but contemplating death, how would that serve in this way? You know, isn't life hard enough without dwelling on something like that? And you know, maybe, maybe the Buddha or, or the translators might have made a mistake. <laughs> they, they, they got it wrong. And the other ones maybe, and, and then they forgot one and, and accidentally slipped death in there. And there might be times, depending on our current circumstances, when, when it might not be a good idea to bring this contemplation to mind. There might be circumstances where, where we want to, to not do that. And the point of it is not to make us feel bad or create in us some kind of sense of powerlessness or resignation in the face of the inevitable. You know, we have to take care that, that we don't collapse inwardly with these kinds of reflections. But we may fear that it would be depressing somehow. But often we find that the opposite is true. Because if we're living with unacknowledged, untended fears of aging, infirmity, and death, by actually, in a careful, skillful way, coming close to them, becoming intimate with them, we can start to uh, undo our conditioning and our, our habits and misunderstandings about them. We can start to let them go and and there's lightness and ease that can result from this. They don't weigh so heavily. They aren't somewhere back here waiting to trouble us. A very, very well-known uh, Thai forest teacher, Ajahn Lee Damodaro, once said, aging, illness, and death are treasures for those who understand them. They're noble truths, noble treasures. If they were people, I'd bow down to their feet every day. That's kind of not our usual way. Bow down to them. Can we see them as noble truths, as noble treasures, as gifts? as allies in our lives that actually illuminate the path to freedom, help us to see. Part of the point of, of coming to a retreat like this is to, maybe the whole point, is to see what's going on in our own mind and heart and body. We want to really understand that, this radical intimacy. We want to see our deep habits. We want to see our views and our ideas and our notions about life and the nature of reality. We want to carefully question those, not take any of them at face value. We want to see it all. And, and sometimes that's not a lot of fun. It's going to be hard. But in a certain way, we're here to be a little bit uncomfortable. You know, your friends or family members who, who don't really know what you're doing here, but they heard you were going to a retreat and they're kind of imagining sort of a spa, you know, <laughs> hot tubs and, you know, just kind of hanging out in, in bliss all day long. <laughs> 
And maybe some of us are hanging out in bliss all day long. May it continue for you. But we're not here to learn advanced techniques for avoiding unpleasantness. (laughs) Or to get better at suppressing things or not looking at certain stuff. We're here to look at it all, all of it. The beautiful and the unbeautiful and the things that are troubling and the things that are inspiring and uplifting. We want to get close to all of it because we can't leave anything out. And so we want to become intimate with our longings and our desperations and our fears because it's only by seeing all of these things that we can see the ways that we may be in bondage to them, confined by them in some way. And through that seeing, we can find our way to release and to freedom. What's it like to say the words right now, I am going to die? How does that land in the heart? This reflection on our mortality can be a powerful tool in our practice if we do it carefully. It's like we're placing a kind of powerful medicine into our hearts, a medicine for healing, a medicine for awakening. We place it into the mind, the heart. We bring it here with us into the retreat and we let it do its work. If we open, truly open deeply to the inevitability, the reality of our mortality, I am going to die. It highlights a a crucial understanding that one of uh, my colleagues, a friend of ours, uh, Brian Lesage, some of you may know him, he, has, he teaches here, he's taught this month long before. He brought this forward in, in this past fall at a retreat he and I were teaching together. And it just was oh, so beautiful, so I want to pass it along to you. Since we are going to die, and soon, even if it's many years from now, since we are going to die, we do not have enough time to hurry and rush. We don't have enough time to be tense and tight. Now, I've added to that reflection There's not enough time to start a war with your own mind and heart. But there is enough time for love. There's enough time for compassion. Can you let this into your heart? We don't have enough time to hurry, to rush, to get tight, to put pressure on or meditation on this practice. We don't have time for that. You know, maybe we, we first hear this kind of thing, we think, well, well, if, if, 
if death is certain, but the time of death is uncertain, you know, don't I have to get busy? Get going, no time to waste. And there may be a certain kind of wholesome urgency, but that doesn't mean rushing. That doesn't mean pressure. That doesn't mean getting tense. Because life is too short for that. There's time to slow down, to relax. And there's plenty of time for love and compassion. Some, t- some point someone asked the Dalai Lama what, what surprised him most about humanity. And he said, human beings, because they sacrifice their health in order to make money, then they sacrifice their money to recuperate their health. And then they are so anxious about the future that, the future that they do not enjoy the present. The result being that they do not live in the present or the future. They live as if they are never going to die and then die having never really lived. Work really hard so you can go take care of yourself somewhere. And it doesn't mean we don't work hard. (laughs) That's not what this is saying. It's the way we work hard. It doesn't mean we don't go quickly. That's not the same as rushing. That's different. I mean, do we want to arrive at the end of our life and realize that we didn't actually live? How do we aspire to be running around in circles or actually being present right here, right now, this moment? Reflecting on the inevitability of our own death can really help us to clarify the importance the power of what we're doing here. Do you have a sense for how radical this is in the world? The shift, the shift of view that we're talking about here? This is no small thing. We're, we're shifting our view. We've been standing here and we're going to go stand way over there and we're going to look this way. This isn't a small undertaking here. This is the real deal, friends. This reflection brings us right to here, now, this moment. It's a tool for establishing mindfulness, mindful presence. It reminds us this is all we have. This moment right now. All of our memories are happening right now. All of our plans for the future right now. It's so hard for us to actually show up for, to actually be in the moment, isn't it? We're not really very good at it. And we see the mind running around, 
desperately trying to avoid just being here and now. Maybe only my mind does this. That's we're do, we're learning on this retreat how to actually be here now, right now. And in a way, you could say what we're doing here is learning how to live, so that when we come to the end of our lives, we won't be able, we won't have to say, "I didn't actually live." And so then we can look at our life and examine it. What matters? What is truly worth doing? But this doesn't mean we have to start rushing around. This reflection actually reminds us that we don't have time for that. And this reflection also connects us to the beauty, the preciousness, the fragility, and the brevity of life. Many of you probably share this experience. As I've gotten older, the passage of time seems to have sped up. I remember as a child, you know, summer vacation just lasted for so long. And then the school year just wouldn't get over because summer vacation. I don't know if kids have that. We had like three months. And now a year like that. And what happened to the last few weeks of this retreat? That's two or six weeks. They're just gone. There's this flexibility, this this sense of the passage of time is very, very, gets really stretchy and strange on retreat, doesn't it? A period of meditation can last an eternity. And a day is gone like this, a year of our life. This is a, these are some words from a, a Blackfoot warrior named Crowfoot. A little while and I will be, go- will be gone from among you, when I cannot tell. From nowhere we came into nowhere we go. What is life? It is the flash of a firefly in the night. It is the breath of a buffalo in the wintertime. It is the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. These kinds of reflections I've been pointing to, the heavenly messengers, the reflection on our own mortality, brings us right up to seeing our often unseen ideas and notions about what it is to live, and what it is to die. You know, how, do we, how do we measure the value of a life? How do we measure its, its sense of completeness? Is it, is it measured in terms of number of years lived? Or how much stuff we've managed to accumulate or how many experiences we've managed to have? Is that how we measure the value there, the completeness of a life? 
You might remember in one of my talks, maybe the last one, I, I read a passage. Uh, it was a description of, of someone who had been a friend of Henry David Thoreau, and he was talking about his last days and how there was such a sense of balance and equilibrium, this equanimity there. He wasn't troubled by his, his debilitating illness. He said there was as much contentment in perfect illness as there was in perfect health. <clears throat> and he had a wasting disease. He had tuberculosis. And he died at the age of 44 after years of being quite sick. Was that an incomplete life because he died so young? At least from our terms, we would say most of us, that was young. Because that life was too short. Some years ago, <clears throat> probably longer ago than I realized, I was, I was able to come and sit for the two-month retreat here. And uh, I tend to wake up quite early and just my rhythm on retreat. I, I don't have a plan about it, but I usually wake up very, very early. And some of you I know like those early hours, very sweet to come in the hall. Maybe there's one or two other people, 3.30 in the morning, so quiet. And I was doing walking meditation. It was cool. And I, I would walk in the upper walking hall in those early hours before dawn when it was still dark. I like to do my walking up there most days. Once in a while there would be one, someone else sharing the space with me and a candle would have be lit. And there was one morning I was, I was walking and there was just this sense of simple presence. The mind was collected and calm balanced. And I had this thought, oh, this would be a really good time to die right now. Just oh, wholesome mind states. This would be a good time to die. It wasn't a death wish. <laughs> and it would have been kind of a drag for the person who had to come up and find the corpse. And <laughs> And my partner, my partner would have been really pissed off at me probably <laughs> for not coming home. <laughs> Maybe not, but she would have been upset. You know, and, my, and I, I was reporting, I was meeting with uh, Carol Wilson and Andrea were teaching. And I, I remember I told Carol and she said, I'll kill you if you die because I, I had to... Uh, I had several teaching engagements and she, you know, it would have been a real hassle for her to replace me. I was scheduled to teach the three-month retreat at IMS and she, she didn't want to have to help find somebody else. <laughs> but what if I had died up there? I mean, aside from the, having to clean up the mess and air it out or whatever. <laughs> Sweep up the bits and haul, haul the corpse into the bush for the coyotes. <laughs> aside from that work 
Would that have been too soon? Would my life have been incomplete? Unfulfilled somehow? Would it have been tragic? Would it have come too soon? What if you were to die right now listening to the Dhamma? That's supposed to be a really good way to go. Sitting in meditation. Or sometime tomorrow morning, would your life be incomplete? It's just worth looking at our our ideas and notions about these things. What is the measure of a life? So we might bring, invite in these heavenly messengers. They're walking around with us all the time. We don't have to look very far. Some people consult them daily. There's a practice called uh, the five subjects for frequent reflection. And the first three are I'm subject to aging. I'm not exempt from aging. I'm subject to de- illness. I'm not subject. I'm not exempt from illness. I'm subject to death. I'm not exempt from death. I will be parted from all that I hold dear. And the last one is a reflection on uh, the truth of karma that our actions bear results and that we will be the heirs to our actions. Yeah, bring these to mind. Just invite them in, see how they land in the mind and the heart. Let them speak to us, let them inform our life right now, right here. This is uh, from the translator and teacher, practitioner, Bhikkhu Bodhi. If the Dhamma is to be more than the bland, humdrum background of a comfortable life, if it is to become, if it is to become the inspiring, sometimes grating voice that steers us onto the great path of awakening, we ourselves must emulate the Bodhisattva, Prince Siddhartha, the Buddha-to-be, We must emulate the bodhisattva in his process of maturation. We must join him on that journey outside the palace walls, the walls of our own self-assuring preconceptions, and see for ourselves the divine messengers we so often miss because our eyes are fixed on more important things, that is, on our mundane preoccupations and goals. So these reflections and open and honest awareness about these fundamental truths, they're a good starting place. And they may wake us up a bit, but Bhikkhu Bodhi suggests that this might not be sufficient for these messengers to really get their message across. He makes the suggestion that we see them as envoys from beyond as messengers from the far shore. As heavenly messengers. In the story, it, one way the story is phrased, these are um, uh, 
devas, a kind of god like brahmas or devas, who have um, come down and taken the form of a, a dead person, a sick person, an aging person, a dead person, and a, and a, a spiritual seeker in order to give uh, give a little oomph, a little kick in the butt <laughs> to the prince and get him out of there. And said that after they got him going, they resumed their usual form and, and went back home. Vigo Bodhi, in, in one piece I read by him, he said we should see them as these heavenly messengers, these envoys from the far shore who point to a radical shift, as I was saying, a radical shift in view and understanding. And as messengers, the realities of aging, illness, and death may lead us to an awareness of the fragility, the brevity of life, the hmm, vulnerability inherent in our day-to-day existence that we ignore so much. It's threaded through the very fabric of our existence, of our very being. And they can become these windows opening on to the truth, the first noble truth, the truth of unreliability, of dukkha. We've been talking about this in all kinds of different ways. And then if we meet them in this way, they can become this beautiful catalyst that leads to this transformation internally where we can really see what's worth doing. Look at what we value at our priorities in life. And we give weight. We bring forward that which really is important, which really matters, which really counts, and aims and actions that will make a difference in our lives, in the world. And so... These messengers send us out, out of our cozy palaces, into unfamiliar terrain. And the final word you could say of the Dhamma is not some kind of surrender to the inevitable or not an instruction for stoically embracing the realities of aging, sickness, and death. Maybe they have this initial message of a kind of wake-up call, this announcement, the house is on fire. You better attend to it. But the ultimate message is a message of deep joy, profound joy. And if we really meet them directly, intimately, over time we see that the faces of these divine messengers begin to change. And they slowly, by subtle degrees, they change into the face of the Buddha. 
however we see that. This message of, I could say, triumph over the armies of Mara, this release from the bondage, bondage to the energies of grasping, clinging, resistance, confusion. And so their, their real message is the message of deliverance, their fingers pointing towards our true home, to the heart's release, to the deepest possible kind of peace. We can sit together for a couple of minutes. Let these words drift away. Remembering that we don't have time to hurry or to rush. We don't have time be tight, to put pressure on our mind and heart. We only have time to slow down. We have time to love. We have time to arrive right here, right now, this moment. Thank you for coming this evening and for listening. Thank you for your practice. It's a beautiful thing, worthy of respect. And I hope you feel it for yourselves. But I offer you my respect, my 
gratitude, appreciation. And we have some time for that good old walk-in meditation. It's the best. And uh, for those who have some energy, you can come at nine and we'll do some chanting for that open-ended period. So you can come just for the chanting if you wish, of course. So please be welcome. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.